Welcome back. I'm Peter Wood, and I'm the author of Mud Between Your Toes, A Rhodesian Farm, which is a memoir about my life growing up in Zimbabwe, or formerly Rhodesia, in the 1960s and 70s. This is a podcast about family, independence, loss, and above all, identity. You know, one of the joys about retirement is that you can go away on holiday for as long as you like. For the first time in my life, I was able to fly back to Zimbabwe to spend time with my family for the whole of November. I was actually recovering from something called laminoplasty surgery on my neck. This was the seventh and hopefully last time a surgeon will ever take a knife to my spine. Now, laminoplasty meant cutting into seven vertebrae in the neck. It's a pretty major operation. And they replace the areas where they've cut out with titanium plates on each vertebrae. It felt like, God, it felt like I'd been beaten on the back of my bloody head with a sledgehammer. The Hong Kong Queen Mary Hospital surgeons, I have to say, were faultless. It was a collaboration between neurosurgery and orthopedic surgery. And God, there must have been about 20 people in the operating theater. It looked like the set from ER. However, aftercare was rather less impressive. And I rightly or wrongly felt that retreating to the bosom of my family in Zimbabwe was the order of the day. You see, the problem is, it doesn't matter how good your doctor is, if the aftercare isn't good, then you might as well get out of Dodge. In my case, I was in hospital for 10 days and not once did they give me a bed bath. I stunk so much in the end, my friends stopped visiting me. I thought, get on a plane and get home as quickly as possible. Now, I decided to fly Kenya Airways, largely because their business class was almost the same price as Cathay Pacific Economy. And I also felt that, well, a flatbed was essential for such a long journey. Ironically, this turned into a real milk run. Hong Kong, Bangkok, Bangkok, Nairobi, Nairobi, Lusaka, and finally Lusaka, Harare. Wheelchair access was uh, another thing that was essential for this trip. And on every single leg of the way, there was a wheelchair waiting for me. God, the joys of going business class. You have first digs at anything. The problem with being in a wheelchair, of course, is the embarrassment. You're terrified that you might bump into one of your friends. The truth is that no one even notices people in wheelchairs. You're actually below their periphery vision. They're all looking up at the screens to see when their aeroplane's leaving. So instead, the people wheeling you around zip you through immigration and customs before you can shake a leg. And the next thing you know, you're boarding the plane. This was the same with me every leg of the way until I got to Nairobi. 
Now, Nairobi was a slight problem because the plane was out on the runway, so I couldn't actually go straight onto the plane. I had to be wheeled out over the tarmac and then up this kind of service lift. And then from there, through this tiny little door that would have been suitable for hobbits. Harari, on the other hand, well, now there was a problem. Again, the plane was out on the runway. And so they brought me, well, these four huge, strong black men came onto the plane. And they had with them one of those stainless steel gurneys that they strap the dead bodies to. So there I was strapped down onto a gurney, being carried across the runway, a bit like David Livingston. As they carried me across the tarmac, all I could think of was, bring on the epic music, and I'd be transported into King Solomon's Mines or some wonderful colonial movie set. There was no electricity in the airport in Harare, and I couldn't use the lifts. Once again, they tried to get me up these very steep stairs, but feet first. Stop, I said, stop, stop. I know you can do this with dead bodies, but with me, I have to go head first. Thank you very much. They nearly dropped me from laughing so much. Now, you know, everyone was so friendly and I got what I wanted in the end and I finally got into a wheelchair and they wheeled me all the way through to the other side. And they said, well, who's picking you up? Well, my sister, I said. Well, where's your sister? Well, she should be here, I said. Well, what's her number? And I gave them her number and they phoned her and said, Mrs. Wood? My sister isn't a Mrs. Wood, by the way. She's a Mrs. Gilmore. Your brother is here waiting for you. Please come quickly. Okay, I'm coming now, she said, I'm coming. They couldn't have been more friendly. You know, Harare is a funny place. I mean, driving through it during the daytime. Well, it was the end of the dry season. I mean, the saving grace was that the jacarandas were still flowering, although they were past their sell-by date. But the flamboyants, well, they were absolutely insane. Their boughs and branches were festooned with bright scarlet flowers. I mean, they hung down almost to the floor. I've never in my life seen such incredible flamboyants, and I certainly don't remember them being like that when I grew up. Maybe they enjoy the, you know, the drought, I don't know. One thing, the collapse of the municipality and the, 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 the crooked lampposts that don't work and the, the potholes in the road, the one thing that they cannot destroy are the trees, which were planted during the pioneer days, well over 100 years ago. But the rest of the city, you know, the rest of the city just looked tired, dry and rather shabby. I hate to say it, but it's kind of just like 
another African city with honking horns and traffic jams and no traffic lights, none, no traffic lights whatsoever. So everyone is taking their life in their hands. You know, in its heyday, it reminded me a little bit of, a bit like Sydney with its beautiful verges and manicured lawns that go right down to the road. Fortunately, it's not like that now. But it's punctuated by pockets of vibrant and verdant properties, such as the retirement village, Dandaro, where my mum lives. You know, and also there are a lot of privately run, I suppose, cafes that seem to have sprung up magically out of the old colonial houses. They've been done up and the gardens in these places are absolutely gorgeous. I think that if you didn't live there, you wouldn't know that they existed. I decided, you know, I wanted to go to the National Archives on Borrowdale Road. Now, the reason for this is because, firstly, well, I've never been in my life. And for two Zimbabwe dollars you get access to all their old dusty ledgers. The people, once again, I mean, everyone in Zimbabwe were polite and helpful. I was looking for some information about my ancestors, my great-grandmother, Bella K. Burnett, who was a great opera singer. Actually, she was called the Rhodesian Nightingale and also her husband, Tom Burnett, who was a pioneer. I hoped that these ledgers would be able to dredge up some old information about them or maybe some newspaper clippings. But alas, I didn't find anything. I might have been looking in the wrong place, I don't know, but I did try at least. Having said that, it was really nice being in the archives and looking through literally these old ledgers that could have come out of a Harry Potter movie. I think the highlight of the National Archives is the Alfred Byte Gallery, which is upstairs. Actually, it's closed to the public, and you have to ask the security guard to open the huge big metal door. And once you're inside, wow, it's quite amazing. There are original Thomas Baines paintings, paintings that, as a colonial kid, we grew up knowing about. Well, they're all there, all of them in their glory. There are manuscripts and documents and declarations of independence. There are watercolors that oh, I saw in storybooks as a child. These are all originals. It's all rather dusty and sad, I'm afraid, and very little light because of the lack of electricity. But it's well worth a visit, especially if you're interested in the history of Rhodesia and Mboya Nahanda, and the Matabili Rebellion, and the Mashona Rebellion. I mean, it's all there, hidden away from public view. I honestly couldn't find who the architect of the building is, but it's very modern, considering it was built, I don't know, I suppose in the 60s. It looks like it was built by Frank Lloyd Wright. You know, the kind of buildings you saw dotted around the hills of Hollywood, or painted so beautifully by David Hockney. In this case, a lick of paint, some water in the fish ponds, and a few plants in the flower beds, I think it would look absolutely spectacular. One of the highlights of my trip was our weekend down to the Zambezi at the Marnapools National Park. 
The last time I went there was in 1984 on an elephant count with my father. It was a wonderful few days walking through the bush counting elephants. Of course, it also enabled me to have one of those rare bonding moments with my dad. But this time, I went down with my sister Mandy and her husband Stuart and their family. It was an eight-hour journey on some very corrugated dirt roads. But the Marnipools National Park, where I might add Attenborough recently filmed an episode about wild dogs, is truly gorgeous. It should be said that we had just come through a terrible drought and a lot of the wildlife, particularly the bigger game like the elephant, had died. So it wasn't teeming with wildlife like the paradise it used to be. But maybe that's just natural selection. There were plenty of elephant, Impala, Kudu and Eland, so you couldn't complain. Oh, and also the warthogs, the vervet monkeys, the baboons, and never forgetting the hippos, and in front of our camp at least 18 crocs. And if you're interested in birds, wow, the bird life was incredible. Now, the government chalets are simple, double-storey little constructions, and to say the least, could have done with some TLC. There was no power or water, no deep freeze, and the chairs would collapse when you sat in them. Stuart found the broken pipe the next day for our water, so we finally had flushing water. Up until then, we were lugging buckets of water from the river, quite literally dodging crocs along the way. But none of this mattered in the end. We had elephants walking through camp. One we even named Beatrice because she kept coming back. We had two very fat lions just a couple of hundred yards from the camp. And boy, we had hyenas all around us at night keeping us awake. And in fact, that first night, we had a whole pod of hippos literally fighting over grazing ground right in front of our chalet. And we had the river to ourselves. It was magic. I can't recommend it enough, and if you are interested, Zim Parks charge 100 US dollars to 150 US dollars per lodge per night. And of course, there are posher lodges further up the river, if you want to pay more, of course. I loved that trip. It was uh, really interesting, and uh, even the return journey was fascinating because there had been rains in the escarpment. And the Mapani leaves suddenly came out with these iridescent green little leaves with swaths of storm lilies carpeting the ground. Honestly, it was like something out of Iolanthi. And then we were back to Harare, and then the next day I drove out to the farm to stay with my brother Duncan and his wife Charlotte. I always loved going to the farm, the cattle, the horses, the tobacco... And, of course, going to bed at night to the sounds of the compound and the tom-toms in the background. We stayed two days on the farm, and it was rather magical being back there. And then we decided to go to Chirundu on the Zambezi River again. This time we drove via Maturashanga. And for the first time in my life, we went along this dirt road between the old farms. Of course, they're all derelict now. But wow, how beautiful it was. 
When we got to Chirundu, well, Chirundu is, it's just another border town, I suppose. Lots of big trucks stretching for at least 15 kilometers waiting to go through customs and immigration. There was rubbish everywhere, and there was even an elephant eating from the bin. It was quite sad, actually. But the holiday home my brother has on the hill is something else. You drive up the hill and suddenly you're away from all of that. You're away from the whores and the plastic bags and the sounds of trucks belching out smoke. But the house and the swimming pool is worthwhile. It's got this magnificent view of the river a couple of kilometers wide at this stage. And the, the, the swimming pool drops down almost like an early version of a, an infinity pool, I suppose. So the, it drops all the way down hundreds of feet to the floodplain below. And there's something wonderful about being able to go to bed in clean sheets with air conditioning. Sorry, my creature comforts are important to me. Oh, and a breakfast in the morning cooked by Francis. Francis has been the housekeeper for many, many years. He's seen all of us kids grow up and seen all of us getting drunk and smoking the odd joint secretly round the corner. Oh, yes, it did happen. And there's a killer view of the floodplain, which with binoculars you can see the wildlife coming down to the river to drink. We decided to go down there for a picnic, right on the edge of the river. We were actually in the path of where the hippos come out to graze. And at the time when we started our first glass of wine, the hippos were about 50 meters away. Slowly they got closer and closer and closer until suddenly this female with a calf reared out of the water right in front of us. I tell you what, we packed up rather quickly after that. We jumped back in the car and drove away to give them some space so that they could come out and graze. That night, we went to sleep to the sound of lions roaring all night. These moments, well, they're precious for me and very rare. Then it was back to Harare, but not forgetting to stop at Lion's Den on the way. There's a little butchery there. You wouldn't know it's there but they have the best biltong in the world. The place was buzzing with people. Back in Harare, we were faced with the usual power cuts and water rationing and shabby streets. Gosh, I have this abiding memory in my head of my mum sitting in her sitting room with two candles staring out into the darkness it was a very sad state of affairs, and I knew that I had to do something to leave her in a space much better than the one that I'd found her in. The government have imposed power cuts from 6 a.m. until 11 p.m. That's no power all day, and exacerbated by that by having no water from 9 a.m. until around about 5 p.m., I mean, it's a nightmare. People are getting up at 11 p.m. to go and do their laundry. And how do you, well, how do you mow your lawn? You can't go and mow the lawn at 11 o'clock at night, can you? It was quite sad. Of course, this is all due to greed and mismanagement from the government. 
In fact, recently, I noticed when I came through Harare Airport that the airport was being rebuilt. Oh, it's being rebuilt by the Chinese, I'm told. But they've pulled out. Why have they pulled out, I asked. Oh, it's because all the money went missing. What do you mean the money went missing, I asked. Well, recently, a delegation, three aeroplane loads of people went to the United Nations in New York. Can you imagine the cost of that? Well, they took the money from the airport project. Oh, and the people who went, the hangers-on, they had a per diem of something like a thousand US dollars a day. So it's no surprising, well, it's no surprising the country is fucked. I expect Emmanuel Macron or Angela Merkel only took delegations of about four or five people. Of course, our country has to take 300. And as for the power cuts, well, I'm going to have to have a little bit of a bitch here because it's a fascinating story. Lake Kariba, which at the time when it was built in the 1950s, was the biggest man-made lake in the world, generally provides most of the power for the country. Not all of it, but most of it. Anyway, it is getting a bit old and the turbines need changing. And France offered to change the turbines free of charge, totally free of charge. And what happened? The government, of course, said, well, we allow you to do that if you give us a little bit of a backhander. A backhander, the French said. Mais You know, we're already building these turbines for you. Sorry, my French accent. Anyway, the French pulled out. Of course they pulled out. They're not going to be have the piss taken out of them. So who stepped in in their place? Quel surprise, the Chinese. Well, the Chinese offered the government their backhanders and installed the turbines. But surprise, surprise, the turbines were the wrong size. Now we're stuck with these turbines that not only provide less electricity, but need more water in order to produce it. How brilliant is that? Really, you just couldn't make it up, could you? And while we're at it, another little gripe that I have is all about Chinese colonization. I know the Chinese deny that they're not colonizing, but they have this thing called the Belt and Road. And the Belt and Road is meant to stretch across the old Silk Route, but of course it comes down into Africa. It's China doing business with the rest of the world, Chinese style. Now, the truth is that they have paid so many backhanders in places like Zambia and Kenya and Tanzania and now Zimbabwe that they seem to have carte blanche to do anything they want. There's a range of mineral-rich hills that travel all the way down Zimbabwe called the Great Dyke. And this has been taken over by the Chinese. God knows, they probably own the Great Dyke now. And they're doing alluvial mining, stripping the topsoil away. I suppose they're searching for rare earth minerals or chrome or perhaps even gold. I don't know. The truth is, nothing ever grows back on that ground. And there are huge tracks of this going on all the way down the country, all along the Great Dyke. 
Well, that's enough bitching for now. Anyway, it's because of that that the country is absolutely stuffed with no electricity or no water and people are just on their bones. But they seem to be smiling along and happy and friendly. You would think everyone would be grumpy and I just don't know how they do it. Anyway, I set my mother up with something called an inverter. It's a battery that charges overnight when the, the Zessa, the Zimbabwe electricity, comes on. And then when it clicks off in the, at 6 a.m., the battery, theoretically, is meant to click on. Well, it worked for a week, and I left my mum in a good space. She had TV, she had lights, she had a fridge that worked, she had Wi-Fi. And then after a week, the whole bloody thing blew up. I don't know who these cowboys are, and I do worry about it. I'm now trying to set her up with some solar panels. It seems that everyone in the country are going off the grid, and it does seem that's, that's the way to go, because I hear a rumour that the load shedding or the power cuts are going to be for 24 hours coming up soon. What a nice Christmas that is for people. My trip ended all too quickly, and despite the obvious hardships, petrol queues, load shedding, government corruption, I always miss it enormously, the friendliness and the large smiles and the big skies, the wildlife, the African bush. And I look forward enormously to my next trip. I'm not sure when that'll be, but I hope it'll be soon. And so it was, back on the gurney, back onto the Kenya Airways, back across the tarmac, back to Bangkok, and back to Hong Kong. I miss Zimbabwe enormously, but it is rather nice being back with electricity and heating and water and all the mod cons of life. I know Hong Kong is going through a few troubles at the moment with all the demonstrations and the government actually going into retreat and not doing anything about it. I think people will sort themselves out eventually. It'll take a long time and I don't think the city will ever be the same, well it won't ever be seen in the same light again. But for me living here, I love it. And I've got a beautiful view over the Saikung Hills. And I hope you will stay with me for my future podcasts, which will be coming up on a weekly basis. Well, that's about it. Thank you so much for listening to me. And remember, you can tune into my new episodes of Mud Between Your Toes via iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Blueberry, and Pocket Casts. Don't forget, you can always buy a copy of my book on both Amazon and Kindle. And I also welcome comments by email on mudbetweenyourtoes at gmail.com. If you want to get involved and you have a good story to tell about those years in Rhodesia, and if you're brave enough to be interviewed for Mud Between Your Toes, feel free to write to me. Goodbye.